From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up from today's show, David Victor joins us to talk about bargaining behavior and international relations. So, stay right here. Well, joining us here is our very special guest this week, uh, Professor David Victor from the University of California at San Diego, and he's going to tell us a little bit about uh, bargaining behavior and international negotiations. Uh, one of the assumptions in economics is that people make rational decisions, but when it comes to negotiations, we find that some of these assumptions don't hold up, and by uh, experimentations, we've shown some of these um, phenomena. Well, uh, Professor Victor, can you tell us a little bit about some of the research going on in negotiations and how we make decisions uh, behind that? Sure, absolutely. So we, we've known actually now for several decades that people are not completely rational. We still u adopt the assumption that people are rational for a lot of our models of political behavior and economic behavior because it's a convenient assumption. Um, and, and it's a useful place to start developing theory, but we've known a lot of ways that people aren't rational. People view risks, very uh, different kinds of risks, very differently. For example, they tend to view risks that they can control. Uh, they're much more accepting of those risks than risks that they don't control. So people do crazy things like ride motorcycles on the highway, and yet they're scared of nuclear power. Uh, even though the risks to themselves are very disproportionate, motorcycles are much more dangerous than nuclear power and, and, and things like that. And so our, our lab here um, at the University of California, San Diego, has been doing some work trying to understand how policy elites make decisions. Uh, and that's been interesting for us because we're political scientists for the most part, and we study international relations. And for us, the most important decisions tend to be taken by very senior members of government, you know, presidents, members of the cabinet, and so on. We actually know very little about how those people make decisions, because those people tended not to agree to allow themselves to be the subject of laboratory studies. We know a lot about how undergraduates make decisions, college students, because college students are willing to go into the laboratory for a few points of extra credit or a pizza or $10 or something like that. Uh, and so we know a lot about the various ways that college students and average members of the public aren't completely rational in the way they manage risks and things like that, but very little about senior policymakers. And so what we did starting a couple of years ago is we uh, got a group of senior policymakers from the highest ranks of business and politics in the, in the United States and did a study with them um, where we looked at how they make decisions related to trade policy. And so we've published a series of papers, one in a journal called International Organization late last year, 2014. Uh, that looked at how policymakers make, make substantive decisions about trade policy, and we can talk about that. But the other paper that I think is the reason you called is, is a paper that just came out recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where we just looked at how policymakers decision, make decisions related to fairness. And one of our big surprises here is that policy, elite policymakers are among the most fair 
population that anybody's ever studied. Um, so, for example, you can study this by looking at how people agree to divide a fixed pie. Um, so, for example, there's a game called the ultimatum game where if you and I are negotiating, I can make you an offer. Say we're, we're deciding on how to divide $100. And then if you accept the offer that I make to you, then both of us get to keep what, uh, what, what keep keep the deal. So for me, the rational decision is to offer you a dollar, and then I keep $99, and you get a dollar, and that's better than nothing. And in fact, what we've been able to demonstrate is that uh, all populations, to some degree, don't just anchor around these you know, highly unequal $1 versus $99 um, deals. But the elites tend to have the have the bargaining behavior that's closest to a 50-50 split. So they've internalized this norm more than practically any other population that's been studied, that the way you get to deals is you make sure the deals are fair. I I see I see. Um, so you know when you say fair, is that a subjective term or an objective criteria? Well, we're using in this study we're looking at fairness through the lens of how people play a fairly simple game, and um, you know getting just getting people to agree to, to play these kinds of games like if we're going to divide a pie of a hundred. Uh, Divide $100 between two folks. Just getting folks to agree to take these kinds of tests is is a big job because the tests remind them of the SAT and remind them of other <laughs> right. things that they did in college that weren't a lot of fun. Um, and this is the reason why elites have not been studied much in the past is is that they tend to be elusive and their time is scarce. And so it took us literally two years to build uh, a relatively small sample, a little more than 100 of these elites who are willing to subject themselves to these kinds of tests and other substantive questions, uh, questions for which there's no right answer, but it helps reveal how people are, are making these decisions. So in the case of the, 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 the game that we had them play, we're using the, the, the evenness of the allocation as, a, as one indicator of fairness. But clearly in the real world, um, fair is a subjective measure. And, and when you take these kinds of results to a real-world problem, like how do we address climate change, where fairness is a really big deal. You know, the developing countries are demanding that the rich countries that cause most of the climate change problem, that they pay some of the extra cost of controlling emissions and how much they pay and how you negotiate this and so on. That Those are the elements of fairness in that bargaining world. But, but for us, what's interesting about this study is that it suggests that not only do elite policymakers know a lot about fairness, but that their inclinations are to make sure deals are fair in the eyes of the beholder because they know that's, that's ultimately the way you get deals that stick. And of course, you know, those, this touches upon the realm of, of politics. Uh, are there any differences you see between so, you know, people who claim to be liberal or conservative? We have seen, so we've done some checks, some statistical checks to see whether the effects we're observing here are related to party ID, and we don't see um, party ID or ideological um, associations as driving the results. Um, instead, we see a much stronger result in our work um, from uh, seniority and from experience, that there's something that happens early on in a career of somebody who ultimately becomes an elite policymaker or an elite strategist inside a corporation, something ha happens early on that selects these people for strategic skills is another area where we've done a lot of work where we see that there's a systematically higher level of, of ability, frankly, to 
to think about strategic interactions among policy elites when compared to non-elite populations like under college students and for fairness. And that happens fairly early in their careers. So it suggests to us that the selection mechanism of promotion and identification of people for jobs early on in careers is, is the mechanism at work. But that, that's, that's an, it's not so much ideology, but that's really in the, air, in the realm of speculation. We, never, we didn't design the study to be able to right. look at that in great detail. And presumably this effect would also transcend, you know, cultures, countries, or ethnicities. Is that right? Well, that's an open question. We, we um, in our study, we looked only at Americans because there's the central purpose of the study was to understand um, some of the complex decisions around the design of trade policy, including whether and how uh, effective international agreements on trade need strong enforcement mechanisms. And so we decided for this study to look only at Americans because once you add other confounding factors like other cultures and, and training and backgrounds and so on, then the statistical power of the sample goes down. You need a much bigger sample. And, and it was a huge job to get just the sample that we got. We have another survey that's in the field right now that we're just finishing up where we look at some similar questions, uh, but through the lens of uh, non-governmental organizations. And so we have a sample of more than 200 policy, elite policy strategists from uh, environmental and human rights organizations, and we've asked them a series of questions about how international law works in their domain, what kinds of laws work better than others, and why, and things like that. And so we're slowly, over time, as, as, as the lab does this work, building a larger and larger sample of of people from now ultimately all around the world. This NGO study that I just mentioned is people from all around the world. And so I think eventually we'll be able to look at some of the cultural questions, but um, so far we haven't been. Uh, other research that's been done in this area suggests that culture does matter a lot, and so does development and, and development context. So for example, there's a very famous paper from a few years ago that played the same game, the ultimatum game, but in uh, very low-income, remote, tribal um, villages. And interestingly, what they found is is the levels of fairness in that bargaining situation were actually much lower than we see even in uh, college student populations or non-elite populations. And um, you know, I'm curious about a little bit about the study. Uh, when you say these strategists rejected low offers, are they doing this in the presence of all the other? Are they competing with the other strategists, yeah, or is it an individual one-to-one uh, -one interaction? We set up, so they, they actually play the game through a computer interface where they're not playing the game real time with others because the, the coordination problem of getting an elite you know, person from the Treasury Department or EPA or a former member of Congress to be online at the same time that another elite is, that's just totally impractical. But, but the scenario we set up for them, and this scenario reflects the actual conditions of the, of the survey, the scenario we set up for them is that they're playing against other people like them. So they know that they're playing against other people who have a similar kind of background, and they know the, the kinds of backgrounds that we're looking for in the, in the, in the study. Um, and, and the interesting question to look at is to whether um, when you're playing people of a different background, whether you play a different kind of strategy. And there's a little research that's been done to suggest that, in fact, that is the case, but we didn't look at that. Uh, so when they reject uh, you know, a so-called low offer, do you think they're sort of hedging their bets, thinking that, you know, by uh, overtly suggesting that what they're offered is of less value, they're, they're hoping other people would have that same perception and then later be able to take that offer at, at you know, at a low, lower value? 
That's possible, but you know, they they know the kind of person they're playing against in this game, but they don't know the actual person. Uh-huh. So a more plausible interpretation here um, is that what they're doing is reflecting a set of norms that have I emerged see. inside the community. Um, but actually nailing this down and nailing down that, that it is exactly fairness that is at work and not some other mechanism like spite, that's that's very, very difficult to do. But I think our, our most likely interpretation is that what we're seeing here is the work of norms that have been frankly honed over many years of bargaining situations where um, people are willing to incur costs to themselves, which is really what happens when you reject the low offer. They're willing to incur costs to themselves in order to punish folks who don't adhere to those social norms. Oh, I see. I see. Well, wow, it's it's a really fascinating research, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit broadly more on your work with with decision makings in in say the the climate change uh, issue. Uh, and you've written a book uh, called Global Warming Gridlock. Could you tell us a little bit about the premise behind that? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that, and uh, uh, before before we break here. So the book, which came out in twenty eleven is an explanation for why we've spent now more than two decades negotiating on climate change issues but not actually achieved anything. So you see evidence of those negotiations in the international agreements, treaties like the Kyoto Protocol, but when you look at the emissions data and you look at whether those treaties have actually had an impact on behavior, you don't see much impact. And so the book is in part a diagnosis for why that is. Um, and in part, it's a, it's a, it's a blueprint, blueprint um, for how we could do better. And part of the blueprint is to work a little less in the big UN conferences, which I think make people feel good, uh-huh. but are prone to gridlock because they're, you know, they don't really have voting rules and, they're, and so therefore they're sensitive to the least ambitious countries. And instead to work in smaller groups, to take the big problem uh, problems and divide and, and narrow them down into smaller problems that are more easily uh, uh, handled, to work a little less, at least initially, on carbon dioxide, which is the main greenhouse gas, um, but unfortunately it's politically very, very difficult to address because it's intrinsically bound up with fossil fuels, and work more on short-lived climate pollutants like soot, because more countries want to do something about soot, which is a big cause of global warming, but also a big cause of local air pollution. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. even a country like China, frankly, the United States is somewhat reluctant to do much on carbon dioxide, but a country like China is willing to do a lot on soot because they know that air pollution is killing lots of Chinese and killing lots of crops, and that's, that's bad right now. Right. And so the way to get started is to you know, begin pedaling this bicycle on, prob- on the parts of the climate change problem that are easier to address, working in smaller groups. And, and I think I'm, I'm encouraged in the last couple of years I think this blueprint is being actually followed to a greater degree, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm the reason for it, but, <laughs> but, what, but what, what we are seeing is a lot more progress in smaller groups and in smaller problems as opposed to trying to take on everything all at once. And so the, the deal last November between the United States and China is an example of that. What the EU is doing on its own is an example of that. This big, very, very effective program that Norway has been leading on forests with Brazil and Indonesia and other countries, that's an example of that. And so we're seeing a you know, ton of decentralized activity of this type and what we'll see over the next 10, 11 months as diplomats uh, work up to the next big conference on climate change, which will be held in Paris in late November 2015, what we'll see is efforts to stitch together all these smaller groups and decentralized activities into some kind of larger coherent um, uh, strategy. And, and so, you know, behind these negotiations, one of the big issues is it's, uh, 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 you know, uh, a rivalry between, say, the developed countries and the developing 
countries uh, led by U.S. and China, respectively. Is that a fair narrative, or is that is that sort of I a think, superficial assessment? I think that rivalry's been there, um, but and, and it continues to be there. And this is one of the areas where fairness questions come up. But to me, what's more interesting is that the the block of developing countries is really split a lot between the countries that have very low emissions but are extremely vulnerable to climate change, like the low-lying island countries, and um, the much bigger emerging economies that frankly need to do more to control their emissions, like China and now India. And I think that split has been good news for climate politics because it means that developing countries are negotiating less as a unified block and more focused on how do they get as many countries as possible to just do something about controlling their emissions. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Um, you know, I, I think there was a study that came out last year that suggested that, you know, one of the reasons why the negotiation has been so difficult is that people don't really know where the red lines are. That is, um, you know, where, what exactly are the levels where there's, you know, points of no return in, in you know, environmental indicators. Do you, do you believe that that is one of the challenges we need to address? Yeah, I think I'm, you may actually be referring to a paper that I was the co-author on in Nature right. in early October. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that paper makes the argument that um, there actually aren't any bright lines in terms of kind of absolute thresholds beyond which we, we know we can't cross. And perhaps more importantly, it makes the point that the bright line that's, that, that has been set politically, which is to stop warming at two degrees, is just no longer tenable because we've spent so long not doing much on, on controlling emissions that we're basically guaranteed to blow through the two-degree limit. And so we wrote that paper to tee up a debate um, that I think is going on, but it's still a pretty nasty debate, a debate about <laughs> what are the right levels, what are the right limits, um, and how do you codify those limits? Because it may be that it's not smart to set those limits in terms of global average surface temperature, which is um, actually not that responsive directly to the, to the human stress on the climate system, and that there are other indicators like the amount of heat going into the oceans or the total imbalance in heat in the atmosphere's uh, ocean system, that if measured properly, that that would be actually a better indicator of how much stress humans are putting on the climate. But I think the main point is that the original goal of stopping warming at two degrees is simply not feasible anymore. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a real pleasure to talk with you, and um, thank you for thinking of our work, and I look forward to talking again in the future. And uh, thank you so much again for, uh, for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. And we were just talking to Professor David Victor on bargaining behavior and international relations. His recent research was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. David is Professor of International Relations at UC San Diego and is Director of the Laboratory on International Law and Regulation. And he's also the author of the book Global Warming Gridlock. And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. Our email is science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Thank you.